Well, good morning, and welcome to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, welcome back. If you've been away for the summer, and that includes many of you who have traveled all summer, I know what the summer is like, um, especially this summer where I've traveled quite a bit. Um, next week, when we go back to two services, it's just helpful to remind you, if you can, be with us in the first service. That would leave room in the second service because we know students are not going to be here at the 915 service en masse. I mean, they will, some of them will be here, but most of them will come in that second hour. Well, I love that song that we just sang, and we'll, it really comes into play uh, with the message, and we'll get to that a, a little bit later on. But let me begin this morning by asking you, have you ever heard of a, of a, of a man, a minister named Ben Hayden? Anybody ever heard of Ben Hayden? handful of you have, the Presbyterian corner over here. Ben Hayden was a Presbyterian. He was the pastor at First Presbyterian in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I used to go to Tennessee Temple, which Tennessee Temple is just slightly, slightly to the left of Bob Jones University. That's all. I mean, independent Baptist school, and um, I learned so much about the Bible there that I have relearned. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I did learn a great deal of foundational truths about Scripture there. I'm very grateful for the Lord leading me there, and He clearly led me there. I got saved just one month before I got out of high school, and I didn't know the difference between independent Baptist, missionary Baptist, Southern. I had no idea. The Lord just led me there, and there I was. Um, we've got another one or two temple alum in this congregation who are still trying to get over it, I imagine, <laughs> Tom and Kathy Ray. <laughs> um, but uh, when I was at Temple, I used to drive by First Presbyterian Church. Ben Hayden was the pastor, and I'd think, liberal church, liberal church. It was an awesome church. I wish I had known. Ben Hayden was one of the founding members of the PCA, or Presbyterian Church in America, and has had phenomenal ministry with thousands and thousands and thousands of people through the years. Several years ago, my good friend Jimmy Elliott, who's the pastor over at Christian Light Church, not just across Highway 401 from us, uh, went to Moody Bible uh, Pastors Conference up in Chicago, and Ben Hayden was one of the speakers, and he made a startling statement. It was something to this effect. He's talking to pastors, maybe... 800 to 1,000 pastors, teaching elders, lead pastors in the churches. And he said, men, if you come to the end of your ministry and you can fill up one hand, he was talking about discipleship, he said, if you can fill up one hand with the number of people who are fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ because of the ministry that the Lord gave you and the way that he used you in these lives, then count yourself blessed indeed. That's stunning when you think about it. Here's a man who, is, who hosts a website called Changed Lives. He's, he's still alive today. Changed Lives. And he says, really, how much change is there? Real, serious, God-produced change in people's lives. But Scripture has the expectation that we'll change, right? It, it absolutely does. In fact, 
years ago, I, I concluded that the, that the number one quality that's necessary or characteristic or character trait of a disciple is a willingness to change. You know, they came up to Jesus and they said, we want to follow you anywhere. He said, is that right? Birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Can you handle that? Lord, I'll follow you just as soon as my, my, I bury my father. He's, he, he's not in good health is basically what was going on. And he was saying, but I, I really can't leave. Somebody's got to take care of my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Now, Jesus knew more about this man's heart than we know, obviously. That's not the advice we'd give somebody. We'd say, no, take care of your, your dad. But, but again, Jesus knew this. But discipleship requires radical, radical commitment in our lives. And it's one of the reasons I'm certain that Ben Hayden says, that'll do. If you see people, if you see five people who radically commit to Jesus Christ, then you got to be pleased with that. The Holy Spirit has been sent to live in us and to enable us, to empower us to live according to God's Word, according to His expectations for us. But there are so many times in the New Testament when we see the author say, quit hating, quit fussing, quit lusting, quit causing dissension, quit backbiting. And, and it's not preventative teaching that we see, but corrective rebuke. And the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, says, we got to get over our problems with sin and our problems with one another. Why is there so much of that in the New Testament? Because as long as we live in this flesh, we're going to live out the gospel cycle that we have talked about over and over in the last several months. This is officially the last day of this series on the gospel, but we're going to continue talking about the gospel for another three or four weeks as our students come back to us in, in, in one form or another. Any, anything we say really from Scripture is the gospel. But, but we see this cycle that we've talked about, ruin, redemption, relationship, and we think once we're saved that the ruin is behind us, but it cycles all over again. And we find ourselves falling far short of the life and the love to which the Lord has called us. So as we come to these last two chapters in Romans, it's appropriate that we end our time here talking about relationship because that's where the, it, it, it has all cycled. And really, the things that we're going to read about today, Paul is saying, listen, if you're not careful, you will come to ruin. Not just individually, but as a body. Now don't worry, I'm not going to preach all of Romans 15 and 16. Chapter 16 consists of a series of greetings to Christ's followers in Rome and a handful of instructions about the Christian life and then an awesome benediction that you're going to hear at the end of this message. And as tempting as it is to launch into a message from Romans chapter 16, which is a surprisingly powerful text, you just think this is all greetings, but it has so much to say about community, the gospel community, and especially home fellowships, which we will be beginning 
afresh and anew. Most, many of them have been meeting through the summer, but, but you're really not fully integrated into body life at Grace or in any place unless you're, 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 you're meeting in small groups. And you see so much of that in Romans 16. And as tempting as it is to go into it, we're going to stick to the first 13 verses of Romans 15, which really is part two from what we read last week from Romans uh, 14. It's, it, it's talking about honoring those in the body who have differences than, 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 than us. And so please, if you will, be turning in your Bibles to Romans 15. In this text, we're going to see once again that Jewish and Gentile believers had a hard time getting along. They were, they were discovering life with one another a little bit tough. I mean, both groups were following Jesus. And it was to Jesus' example that Paul pointed when he said, you guys have got to quit squibbling and squabbling about dietary differences and, 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 and ceremonial day differences and treat one, another's like, one another like the dear brothers and sisters you are. They didn't feel like the people who were living life differently than, than they were, were were dear brothers and sisters, but they were. And Paul said, God has brought you together in this beautiful way. So live like the family that he's called you to be. The ones sitting around you today, or, or maybe there's someone in our body that is not here sitting around you today. We're all dear brothers and sisters in Christ. We all are. Any brother or sister in Christ is a dear brother or sister in Christ, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Unity is a challenge. That is why a surprising amount of imperatives or commands in the New Testament deal with getting along with one another. But if the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results, and if Ben Hayden's words are true about how little change can really truly be expected in our lives, is there really hope that we're ever going to be in this life who we're called to be? Well, absolutely there's hope. The whole New Testament cries out that the hope that we have in Jesus of eternal life, spending eternity with Him, impacts and should impact the way that we live today. But i got to tell you, it's not easy. Especially in this, in this life. Okay, you can, you can give up uncontrolled, what were previously uncontrolled habits in your life, like, like, like spending, overspending, or overeating, or, or, or looking at pornography, or alcohol, or, or drugs, or things like that. You can commit to reading the Word day in and day out. You can have your quiet time every day, but I got to tell you, it can be tough loving each other. It seems like that'd be the easiest thing to do. Remember what it was like when you first got saved? How much you loved the people of God? Well, we're going to revisit Ben Hayden's troubling words about the human condition that are true even for, for those who follow Jesus later in the message. 
But for now, and, 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 and we're going to find instruction in the Word for overcoming this tendency that we have toward disunity. But for now, let's read an encouraging passage about change. It's in Romans 15, verses 1 to 13. We will read this together. If you would, please stand. And as you have been told several times in the last month, even though the words are on the screen, far better if you read along in, in your Bible, if you have yours Bible with, your Bible with you. Especially interesting, if you have a different translation, you can see how, how the translations differ slightly. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Our Father, um, we are so grateful for your word. As I was reading just, just, just yesterday from Isaiah 55, it will not return void. It will accomplish its purposes. Lord, it, it's going to accomplish its purposes. And how tragic if it does so in my neighbor but not in me. Lord, open my heart even as I teach from this word, Lord, oh, I want the Holy Spirit to be the one teaching, but, but open my heart to receive it. Lord, I, I ask that that is the prayer of every single person here today. And we ask these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Oh, my goodness. I mean, there is nowhere near enough time to discuss the truth that is contained in these 13 verses, to talk about the ways that Romans 15, 1 through 13, relates to our relationship with one another. It's all 
part of the gospel, our relationship to Jesus and our relationship to other in spite of our differences and how we're told to accept one another in Jesus in spite of our differences. Even those, the differences that, that Paul specifically addressed between Jewish and Gentile believers, those, those holy days and, 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 and the dietary restrictions of the Jews, even though they don't speak to the issues that we deal with in this contemporary evangelical church. We have our differences in the contemporary evangelical church. Even those churches that, that, that agree totally on the authority of Scripture and on the lordship of Christ. We have our difference in, differences and the application abounds for all of us. As long as we are in this human flesh, we will struggle to get along. And we'll be tempted to elevate personal preferences that we have and convictions that we have to levels that should only be reserved for the kinds of theological truths that cause us to say, we got to line up on one side or the other. Do you get that? There are certain things that are worth saying we're over here, you're over here, and there's no way that we can come together. For the most part, the things that we struggle over aren't in that category. They're in a category down here. We pull it up here, and we have difficulty getting along. You know, since it would, would, would often be difficult to determine in these differences that we have with one another. Who's strong and who's weak? Let's apply this passage, not so much with strong and weak, but just one another. Love one another. Accept one another in your differences. The, this section of Romans is about relationship. The gospel cycle, our relationship with Jesus informs our relationship with others. And in fact, Paul talks about how we are to follow the example of Jesus who laid down his life in order that we might have a relationship with God in the first place. So we're to die to ourselves every single day. Now if we're going to enjoy the kind of unity that will advance the gospel, then we are going to have to work at it. That's what Paul told his friends in Romans 15 verses 1 to 3. First he said we ought to bear the failings or literally the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters. But again, let's just talk about we need to bear the differences that we have with one another. The sense is here that we are to carry and support our brothers and sisters in their differences rather than to look down on them and be aggravated with them. Why, why do you why do you think that? Why do you no bear with them? The Lord says. Our natural tendency though is to be aggravated with their differences in, in our best moments and in our worst moments to condemn the person as well as their ideas about how life ought to be lived in the body. That's the first thing. Second, Paul says we ought not to please ourselves. That's, a dif that's difficult in a society that is consumed with both pleasure and self. And yet he says we ought not to please ourselves. Our natural tendency is to work hard to get our own way. 
whether that's at work, whether it's in marriage, in the family, at home, in church, neighborhood, wherever it is, we work hard to get our own way. And, and Paul says, don't do that. Don't please yourself. And the third thing he says is connected. Instead of pleasing yourself, please your neighbor. Now, please understand, there's a difference between men-pleasing and neighbor-pleasing. To please men means to, to flatter other people, always looking for an angle, always looking to advance your own agenda or, or, or to satisfy your own needs for security at, that other people think well of you. And so you please, you'll say anything, you'll compromise principles of Scripture in order to please men. It's always insincere and devoid of integrity. Neighbor-pleasing, on the other hand, has your brother or sister in mind. Verse 2 tells us that we please others in order to build them up. That we die to ourselves, just as Jesus did, as we're getting ready to see, and, and please them for their own good. It's for their good that we put them ahead of ourselves. And we should do it because of the perfect example of Jesus' love. Verse 3, Jesus did not please himself. He was so closely identified with the name, the will, the cause, and the glory of God, the glory of the Father, that it was as if those reproaches that went to the Father fell on him it not was as if it it was the reality uh, Paul was quoting from Psalm 69 a, a text that's quoted at least four times in the New Testament with regard to Jesus in connection with Jesus so it's a, a messianic prediction and now this psalm is quoted and we're told to follow Jesus' example not to please ourselves even when refusal to do so causes us to suffer. In verse 4, Paul makes it clear that Scripture is the basis for the call to unity. Disunity in the church is not only an ethical problem, as it surely is, but it is first and foremost a theological problem. When we don't get along, it's not because the other person is different or the other person is demanding or the other person is this, that, or the other. It's, it's a theological problem. If unity is wrapped up in Jesus and we seek to destroy unity or even if we fail to make unity in the church a priority, then we're disobedient to Scripture and thus disobedient to God. Point is made over and over and over in the New Testament. Now that may not seem like that big of a deal since all diversions from Scripture and are, are disobedience to God. But don't forget in Romans 14, we're told that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of, of God. And you know, this, this happens to me over and over and over again. When I go through a book in Scripture, and we have been going through, Sean and David and I, all three of us have participated in this, but when you go through a book of Scripture, you come across these verses that, 
that you've seen all your life applied to this and to that, and all of a sudden you see it in the context. And it's like, whoa. So here we are coming along, and we see this verse. All of us will give an account of himself to God, and we're thinking we're going to give an account on our giving, and on our, uh, our giving, tithing, our, um, our ability to say no to sin, our holiness, our... our, our, our um, Commitment to devotions and quiet time. And basically what he's saying is we're going to give an account of how we got along with one another. We're going to give an account of how we got along with those who are radically different in the ways that they think. The Christian life is to be lived. Did we love all that we could? Did we forgive where we needed to, to forgive? Did we... Do we think of others? Did we think of others more highly than we thought of ourselves? And did we defer to them when we had to choose between their pleasure and our pleasure? Scripture speaks to all of that and so much more on the topic of unity. And Paul takes several verses to make his case from the Old Testament, beginning in verse 8. We're not going to take time to read verses, spend time in verses 7 to 12, but the overwhelming impact of Scripture, that's the point of what he's saying here. He was setting it up. Look, God's been telling you all along, Gentiles are going to be a part of my people, and you guys need to get along together. And Scripture is the foundation for unity. It's going to come back into play at the end. We are going to take time, however, and read what amounts to, to two benedictions which that, that usually come at the end of a chapter, uh, end of a book, but here they're sort of in the middle. But Paul is, is, is praying this prayer of, of blessing. It's a challenge being placed where it is in the body of the letter, but he's, he's praying this prayer of blessing for unity for these guys. They're found in chapter 15, verses 5 to 6, and then in verse 13. Let's read this first powerful benediction and as we do let these words just flow over your heart and soul may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another remember this is right on the heels of verse 4 where Jesus did not please himself but gave up his life and the scriptures were written so that we might endure and encourage one another May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an interesting section right in the middle of these two verses. Live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. I know that every single one of us has at one time or another said, Lord, I love you deeply, but I just cannot get along with so-and-so. God's response to that would be, you don't really love me. I mean, we sang it, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. But we cannot be fully and head over heels in love with Jesus if we don't love our brothers and sisters, even though we have differences with them. 
That, that, that's what all of chapter 14 is about. It's not that we agree with everything on one another. That's, that's not going to be possible. I heard tomato all the time in Australia. And somebody said, do you grow tomatoes this way? I said, we don't grow tomatoes. We grow tomatoes, you know. We have our differences. It's going to be impossible for us to all agree and, and, and to be in lockstep with one another. But the point is, is that in spite of our differences, we love one another. And we quit trying to find ways to make the other person appear less spiritual than we are because of the differences. Why is it important? Why is unity so important? Because it's impossible to glorify God with one voice apart from it. At least two things are sacrificed when we are fractured and divided. First, we cannot worship God when we sing with a discordant song. Some of the absolute funniest things on YouTube. And it's terrible to laugh, but it's just hilarious when you see, you know, bands playing out of tune or choir singing out of tune. I mean, it's just... But look, if, if, if this were a serious moment and we had these guys up here every week singing out of tune, you know, we would say, can we do something about that, you know? I mean, look, we all have our gifts and, you know... I'm not saying who, but somebody's gift is singing. That's singing. And, and when we're, you know... When we are, are singing out of tune, and they, as they scramble in the back, <laughs> amazing grace, how sweet the sound. God loves you. Jesus died for you. That saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace. A singing. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. T'was blind, but now I see. We cannot glorify God with one voice if we are singing out of tune. And I recognize that, that when it comes to singing, that indeed God has gifted some and He has chosen not to gift others. And that doesn't have anything to do. It's the cry of the heart that matters. Not whether we actually sing in tune, but we are singing a song to the world. And when we are not getting along, it's not a pretty sound. Second, 
when we are worshiping out of tune, and this is fulfilling what I just said, the world is disenchanted with the gospel and oftentimes even disgusted with the gospel. And we salve our consciences with a, with a bumper sticker Christianity that says, Christians aren't, for, aren't perfect, just forgiven. That sounds great if you're a Christ follower. It sounds like an excuse if you're not. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, how they did at this church down here, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. That's the way people look at us when we struggle to get along. Therefore, Christ followers, unite! Well, I will as soon as all... So no, not in there. Instead, the prayer and blessing of Paul in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Where do we even begin with this verse? Let's start by acknowledging the, the need for this verse. Every church, every group of believers that meets any time for worship or service is going to struggle with unity at some point. If everything is wonderful at the moment, it won't be for long. As we've talked about before, what, 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 what a perfect place for Satan to damage the work of the gospel when we take shots at one another. And let me remind you folks, by the way, this is just where we happen to be. This is one of those great benefits of preaching through the Bible. Romans 15, it came up today. And you've got to preach it like it is, right? We're human. But if our unity is compromised, the gospel is hidden to the eyes of those who have been blinded by Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. It's like you, you, know, you take a blind man into a room and say, now, here's surgery. We've corrected your vision. But, but the room was without windows, and you turn all the lights off, and the bandages are taken off, and it's still dark. You Again, God is sovereign. He calls whom He will, but that's not our perspective. That's His perspective. Our perspective is that we can do great damage to the gospel, the advance of the gospel, if we don't get along. But you know something? Even though it is impossible for us to manage unity in our own strength, according to our text, the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us. We tend to think about the power of the Holy Spirit in, in terms of preaching the gospel and seeing people come to Jesus and in miraculous healings and in church growth. But the power of the Holy Spirit is promised here for the unity of the saints. Again, in context. How does it come? Through belief. Better believing leads to better behavior. It always does. We get it backwards. Well, if you just straighten up, then maybe you can know about what the Lord's trying to do here. Say here. Better believing leads to better behavior. That's the order. Remember, 
this section of, of, of Romans 15 is filled with Old Testament references that are, are used in our New Testament text to make the case for unity in the body of Christ. God is, this was God's plan all along. So once again, it's back to the power of the Word. And way more often than not, needing more of the Holy Spirit in our lives is accomplished by building more of God's Word into our lives. Power rests in the Word, and the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts where necessary to bring about the kind of changes that we so desperately want but are unavailable to us apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, taking God's Word God's living word and affecting change in our lives. So, how did the church at Rome do with Paul's admonition? It's not good news. And it reminds us of Ben Hayden's words about so little change occurring in the lives of those in the gospel community. And you know what I do? You know what I did? You know what I said when I was preparing this message? I said, well, not me. There's going to be change in my... And and see, that's part of the problem. It's our pride. I may never, ever see any change in Craig Finnerty, but I can tell you one thing. You'll see some change in Brad Talley. And that change is going the wrong way. I really, I really struggle with whether or not to include this next little section in this message. And finally said, well, you know, if it's reality, we need to deal with it. To set this up, I, I, I want to say something about Kent Hughes, who used to, he was a pastor for a long time at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. If you've ever read anything by Kent Hughes, you know what a, what a godly man he is and, and, and what an awesome presenter of God's Word he is. And, and while Hughes writes his commentaries, I've benefited for years, so have you benefited for years and years, the fact that I've studied using Kent Hughes' commentaries. While uh, he writes as a pastor or a teaching elder to the people applying Scripture. It's very clear that he has done his theological homework and that he's theologically astute. I have never seen Kent Hughes say anything that I question, you know, like, no, that's just wrong. I mean, I, I know that not because I'm a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar, but I know the guys who are, you know, and if they're all in agreement and Hughes is, but he is always in perfect step when he talks about theological issues, which he does every message. He's always on target, but he spends more time on application. Also, I have found him to be very careful in the things that he says. He doesn't just nilly, willy-nilly quote things, you know, just to make a point. So even though what we're about to read from Kent Hughes is, is, may seem a little bit speculative in nature, We have to say that if it is speculation, it's informed speculation, and that there's enough evidence to make it more than plausible that this is what happened with the early church in Rome. Here's what Hughes had to say about that church in Rome in the years that followed Paul's letter. Quote, and leave this first slide up for a minute uh, before we move on to the second half of the... um, 
quote there, Neil. Some scholars believe that the church in Rome to which Paul addressed this eloquent plea for unity in chapter 14 in the first 13 verses of chapter 15 failed terribly. Theologians such as Oscar Coleman believe that some of the early church Christian martyrs, including Peter and Paul, were killed because of jealous strife among the members of the church in Rome. And the only response, I'm not trying to be dramatic. This is my response to that. I mean, it is. Is this, is this even possible? That they could turn each other in? To die? Because they didn't like the way these guys were living out their faith? Let's keep going. Rivalry was so bitter, they say, that some brethren turned in the names of their Christian opponents, naming them as traitors against the empire. If this is true, envy among Christians helped feed saints to the lions in the Colosseum and light fires unto Christians who burned in Nero's gardens. But the fact is, Hugh says, if we do not take God's word to heart, we will terribly fail too. So, if you've been following the arc of this message, we have concluded that unity in the church is absolutely required both for our individual and corporate worship and for the advance of the gospel. This unity, however, seems next to impossible because we don't change much over the years, even though the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us. I, I was talking with my good friend Denton White this week about sort of this issue. And uh, I said, you know, and it just sort of hit me. I said, a lot of the change that has come about in my life, the maturity that I think I have achieved over the years, is, is the same kind of maturity that my granddaughter, Aaliyah, has achieved that she no longer grabs at my daughter's face because my daughter has gone pop that leg. She doesn't want to get popped again. And I, I don't want trouble. So I have matured, you know. Not in the heart, but in the head. I'm not going to go there again. So is there hope? Yes, there is, but it requires absolute commitment to God and to His Word. Our hope is in the gospel. You will recall the gospel that Jesus shared repeatedly. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's among us. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our only hope of true change is repentance. It was the first of, of Martin Luther's 95, was, it's 95, right? Theses. Life is a series, it's all about repentance. It's a series of repentance, of, of repenting. Repent. Keep a humble and a broken heart before God and also believe 
believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, this definition, one more time, and it speaks not just to our salvation, but to all of life. The just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't. See, that's the whole deal about the Christian life. We still can't live it. Even though we've got the power of the Holy Spirit, if He doesn't live it through us, not happening. He sent His Son to live the life that we can't, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross, and to show His power over sin and the resurrection so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. And that's what's important. That's, worth, that's what's worth dividing over. Not the other stuff. The gospel cycle of ruin, redemption, relationship plays out over and over in our lives. With regard to unity, there are times that we just have to stop and say, it's not worth it. I may be absolutely right, but you know what? Before the Lord, and this is what Romans 14 teaches, before the Lord, my opponent, and I hate to even use that word of a dear brother or sister in Christ, but my, let's put it this way, my dear brother or sister with whom I differ may also be equally right. That's difficult for us in the age of enlightenment. There's always got to be an explanation for everything. Scientists are plenty in our, in our body. There needs to be an explanation. Things logically just follow a particular course. And when we come to what seem to be inconsistencies, well, there has to be a problem. And we need to fix it. And yet Romans 14 says, all right, you believe this, you believe this. Who's right? Yes. You both are. So here's, the, here's, here's where we come to. I, it's not worth it. I may be right, absolutely right, but my dear brother or sister in Christ may be right just as much as I am. And I am not willing to risk standing before the Lord and saying, well, how'd you like the way I cleaned up the mess at such and such church? It might not be the response we think. I, I don't want to be found fighting against God. Lord, I repent and I believe that the only goodness in me is because Jesus lives in me. Well, let's close by reading another of Ray Ortland Jr.'s prayers. This one written in response to this specific text. And oh my, does this speak to us. Oh Christ, your gospel defines your church. We do not. You determine whom you will receive into your fellowship. We do not. You have welcomed all believers to yourself some of whom I would never have invited in. And you have welcomed them on the same terms. You have granted all believers the same privileges of salvation. 
None of us has the right to impose conditions for fellowship which you do not require. Your gospel, therefore, is the great unifying force of the church. To the degree that we understand and believe the gospel, we will be one. To the degree, the degree that we honor you, we will be one. But to the degree that we exclude your true people from our hearts, we exclude you and deny your gospel. O living Christ, let the unifying power of the gospel sweep away our many divisions. Written generically, it's just, it's just the reality. Our many divisions... And bring your people together as one. To your greater glory in the world. In your holy name. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. <clears throat> I almost don't, don't know what to say because I, I'm just thinking so so deeply about my own need to respond to the text today. We had thought about, and I know we've, we've gone just a little bit, a little bit long, but we've, we thought about, David and I thought about a song at this particular point, especially song about the power of the cross because really that's the only place where change, true change takes place is when we come to the cross of Christ and we, we just lay it all down. And so let's just take just a few moments in silence and let's pray. It may feel a little awkward. I don't, I don't think so. I, I hope not. Just pray right where you are if you need to. I'm, I'm going to, not, not in the way of show, not in the way of encouragement at least. I don't think that that's the case. I don't know my heart. I, I'm going to kneel up front. And if you're led to come and join me, then do so. But any way that the Lord has spoken to you this morning, would you, would you respond to His Word? His Word always demands a response. And eh, is, is, is a, okay, Lord, no. That's what that means. So would you respond to his word this morning as we pray?